the extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. There are so many different ways to build a business. You can raise money, you can spend your own money, you can start with a customer's money. There are so many ways to build a business. And what I love about this podcast is we get to look at all the different ways people start and what they've learnt along the journey. I'm super excited for this episode because Diana from the Economy Conference shares what's and all the pros and cons, what worked and what didn't of launching a conference business. Welcome to the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast, and I've been super excited about this episode for a while. I have with me Diana from the Economy Conference. Welcome to the show, Diana. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this because I like we had this chat about the conference and some of the things you said about what you learnt running a conference really, really applied to the audience of the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast. And so before we get into that, what is the Economy Conference? Yeah. So the Economy Conference is an event that I produce. We just had our second event, but this has been something that I've been working on since the summer of 2018. And essentially, it's a party about money. It's also been <laughs> That sounds fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we party hard at Economy. Um, it's also been described as the TED Talks of the FIRE movement. So we essentially have main stage speakers that talk about financial independence from a variety of different angles. And then we also have breakout sessions because not only can you learn from the amazing main stage speakers, but there's a lot of knowledge in the room. And so the breakout sessions are really designed to get you talking to each other. And then the event also has a ton of just social um, activities. And it really is about community and inspiration. So it's a weekend long conference mm-hmm. all about money. Exactly. Um, which is fantastic. Like what inspired you to start this? What made yeah. you go, I need a conference on money? And you must know I'm the biggest fan of self-development. Like this is <laughs> this is where I belong in the world. I love it. So really what inspired this is my own personal journey in finding the fire movement. So I found myself at 28 years old. I was living in New York City. I was 30 grand in debt for like no good reason. It was like credit card debt and student loans. Half of it was student loans, which doesn't sound too bad to have 15 grand of student loans, but I had a full academic scholarship to college. I shouldn't have had any student loans. It was so stupid, right? (laughs) So um, I discover, like a lot of people who probably listen to your show, I discovered Mr. Money Mustache just kind of Mm. accidentally. And I like to describe that as this refreshing punch in the face because, (laughs) I mean, I had never heard anyone talk about money the way that he did. And I think it that whole period in my life, it just really helped me realize how much I was wasting my privilege. You know, there's no reason why I should have been in debt. I was simply living outside my means and I was stuck in that 
consumerist behavior that, you know, is ingrained in us. And so I really needed a wake up call and, and Pete was the guy to do it. And so I got obsessed with that blog. I read every Mm. article, like devoured it with a spoon, you know, and that led me to get out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months. Wow. And from there, I started saving and investing about 60% of my income and it opened up a world of opportunity for me. I ended up um, negotiating a remote working arrangement with my employer in 2017 before it was the norm. Like now it's pretty normal to work (laughs) remotely, but at the time it was a very unconventional ask, right? So I worked up the courage to ask for that. And then I also got a two month unpaid sabbatical to go walk the Camino in Spain. So I spent... It took me 38 days to walk 500 miles across a country. And like, it was just this incredible life experience that would have never been possible, you know, in in my financial situation previously. And so I come back home to Cincinnati because I had moved from New York City to Cincinnati back in 2017. And, you know, I buy a house, I adopt a dog, and I just... (laughs) I, you know, life was good. I kind of set myself on this path to reach financial independence by the time I was 40 years old. Um, I'm currently 34. So this was the plan, like reach five by 40. You've still got ages. That was my plan as well, by the way. 40 was my FI target. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that all goes to shit and we'll talk about that later. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Can I curse on this show? I, I, I tend to that's fine. We'll just put a warning at the beginning. Hide okay, your kids. Okay. Uh- okay. Hide your kids. Hide your kids. Um, so anyway, during this time, like after I got out of debt and I found myself going to a lot of events, I love to meet people in person. I go to a lot of, you know, conferences and industry events like in my corporate career. And so Mr. Money Mustache had spoke at this event called World Domination Summit. I think he might have done it in like 2015 or 2016. And so I, I, he must have done it in 2015 because I think the first year that I went was 2016. And this event is incredible. I mean, as someone super frugal to get out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months, I spent $700 on a ticket to World Domination Summit and it was worth every penny because the people that you meet there are living these really expansive lives and the presentations on stage were just phenomenal. And I just, I left that event and I've gone three or four times now Every time I go, I leave feeling like my life is so full of possibility because I'm, it's, it's almost like I'm getting that energy through osmosis, through the people I'm surrounding myself with. And so I decided that I wanted to create something that would give people that feeling about money. And so that's where this idea of economy Mm. came from. And the funny thing about it is that this was supposed to be my retirement project. This was supposed to be when I reach financial independence and I don't have to worry about working for money, what would I do with my time? I would want to create something amazing. And so that was the original plan, but I just got so excited about it that I couldn't wait. Why it's wait? Like, I Why couldn't wait? wait. I know I couldn't wait until 40 to do this. And so I did it. I did it now. I started in, in the summer of 2018, starting to build this thing. And it took me about 20 months to plan my first event. Why don't you guess the date of the first event? 
I won't make you do math here. It was March 7th of 2020. Oh, no. It was one week. It was literally one week before everything shut down. We actually still were able to have it. If it would have been scheduled one week later, we would have had to cancel it. And it was, I felt like I dodged a bullet. And it went really, really well. But then, of course, you know, COVID happens. And, you know, when you're building a business, you, you, you kind of always think about, like, what could go wrong and how do I what could the potential obstacles be that I need to navigate? And I would have never anticipated a a pandemic would affect this in-person event that I was building, but it ended up working out just fine. I mean, we had 250 people at the first event. Naturally, there was a had to be a bit more of a lag between the first event and the second event because we were still navigating the pandemic. But we just had the second event on March 13th and 14th of this year, just a few weeks ago. And we had 400 people there, including Mr. Money Mustache, which is crazy to me because like this guy changed my life and now he's supporting my thing. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's just magical. Yes, I heard that Mr. Money Mustache and Mr. Fifteen Hundred they were all coming along, and I so wished I could have been there. But um, yeah, I'm only allowed to be in the USA for so long before they get annoyed <laughs> with me. And the border control was quite annoyed with me last time I turned up. They said, "You've been here too much, Donegan. Get out." Um, <laughs> so that's incredible. That's fantastic. So, question for you, because people like to start a podcast, to start an event. Having a famous speaker adds massive credibility and gives a reason for people to listen, come along. How do you go about getting speakers for your event? How have you Mm. approached that? Well, I'll tell you that the first event, I called on 150 people to get my nine people. And the reason why it was so difficult is because no one knew who I was. I didn't have a blog. (laughs) I didn't have, like, no one knew me from a row of goats, you know? (laughs) And so I was calling on a lot of people and they were just kind of like, well, you're unproven. You have no track record. You know, you're, yes, you have a successful corporate career, but you don't have much to lead us to believe that you can produce a large scale production like this. And so I was met with a lot of skepticism. I was met with a lot of naysayers. I was told things like, how are you going to get anyone from the fire movement? These people who are supposedly so frugal, how are you going to get them to spend (laughs) money to come to an event like this? And so it was tough, but here's the thing. I was able to get, I remember the first person that was like a bigger name that believed me and believed in my vision and my mission and what I was trying to build. It was Jillian Johnsrud. And she, she just was super encouraging to me at a time that I really needed it. I was just getting a lot of no's, a lot of no's, a lot of no's. Um, and you can actually cut this out, Alan, but your team was, uh, one of those no's. Yeah, you can. Sorry cut that about out that. <laughs> no, no, leave that in there. Yeah, um, yeah. There were a lot of people that were very not nice to me. Um, no, I hope we yes. were at least nice when we said no. Mm, actually, that was a conversation I remember being very not nice. Oh, um, no. But, but here's the thing: I was used to it at that point because I could understand why people were taking that position. Like, first of all, I was asking for speakers, and I didn't have funds to pay them. And yes. 
you know, now I cover travel and accommodations, but at the time I was earmarking like $500 a speaker just to help them with travel and accommodations. And that was like a big kind of non-starter for a lot of people. However, I'm calling on, I'm calling on mostly financially independent people that supposedly (laughs) don't, you know, are, are, don't necessarily need to work for money. But that being said, um, you know, it, it was very challenging to convince people to believe in me. But once I could convince one or two, then it started to get my confidence up, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I don't need 150 speakers. I only needed nine for the first one. And so, you know, once I got uh, Jillian, she kind of started making a couple of warm introductions for me. And that changes that, the game. Yes, that totally changes the game. So she vouched for me a little bit and um, I was able to get some more people. But yeah, I would say I have a background in sales and cold calling. So I I really, I was pounding the pavement. I mean, it was it was all hustle. And that can be very tough when you first start something because... Yeah, you're kind of magicking something out of nothing. Yeah, and yeah. And no one's ever seen anything like this before. So like I had a frame of reference because I actually modeled my event after World Domination Summit and like the best aspects of that event. But, you know, if you don't know what that event is, then I can't, you, you don't really know that frame of reference. So I kind of used TED Talks to describe it, but also it has a party flair to it. it. It was just, people couldn't really wrap their head around this thing that didn't exist yet. Plus me, who was completely unproven. So how did that, did that make it easier for the second year? Having oh, had yeah. something, yeah. Yeah, because, well, what I was able to do is I invested in videography, like good videography. I had a lighting engineer. I had three camera angles. Um, wow. I had a sound engineer. So I really invested in production value for this event. And the people that came, the 250 people that came to the first one, I far exceeded their expectations. And so I had that, the the audience that was very impressed and, and happy with, with what I produced. And then I had these amazing videos that I put up on YouTube for free. And that was a real, it was a real benefit to me and that I could point to something now and see, look at what I created, look at the impact that it's having. You know, I, I think about the most popular speech from the first event is a woman named Jackie Cummings Kosky. And she found the fire movement at 38 years old. And she's a single black mother that never made six figures and she fired in 10 years. And she told, she told her story, the title of her speech is the real numbers behind firing. She opened up the books and showed all her numbers and it was really impactful. And she has gone on since then to, she's used that video and she's like booked on the Rachel Ray show. Now she had a Forbes article written. We had market watch at the last event. And they did a, a video piece on her and they used, I gave them all of my footage for free so that you would see the economy logo, you know, in, in that market watch video. So I think like me just kind of like putting it out there as much as possible and having something very visual for people to see. And again, with my sales background, I'm very, I'm very conscious about quantifying results. So if you look at like my sales decks for sponsors or how is pitching speakers, like I very much was like quantifying my success so that they could see it was real. That's an interesting point because that's 
not what a lot of people do. They pitch the vision, but there's very rarely the numbers behind it mm-hmm. to actually back up the vision. Mm-hmm. How do you quantify your results? What kind of numbers do you use to... Yeah. So I did a, uh, after a post event survey and I was able to collect some data from the audience. So I knew that 90% of the audience would recommend this to a friend and come back. So that was a really good metric. I have certain metrics like, um, so my mailing list is really small and my social media following is very small. Like if you looked at me, you would think this is not a big deal if you looked at me online. However, the audience is small, but they're mighty. So I have like, I don't know, 1800 subscribers to my mailing list. It's not big, but I've got a 50% open rate because the people who are on the list are highly, highly engaged. I had all of the metrics from my YouTube channel. So I put those, those videos up on YouTube and I was able to monetize within three months. It's because the content is so good and it's so shareable that, um, the speakers were sharing their videos, you know, I, anytime I saw someone ask a question about something that was related to a video, I would post that in a reply on a forum, on Reddit, on Facebook groups. And so that really helped to drive traffic. I also asked questions in the survey, like, like the attendees age. So I was able to get certain insights out of that, that would help me get around certain objections, right? So some people would say, well, this event isn't for me because I'm older. This is for young people. It's held at a college. And I'd get to say, actually 20% of our audience last year was over 50. So you're in good company you know, or this is a local event, you know, no one's going to travel from across the country to come to an event like this. And I'd say, actually, we had attendees come from 27 different states last year. So people are traveling to come to this, right? So, so all of those data points really helped me in talking to people about the conference. I love that. So you've got the data, you secured the speakers by making the calls what have you learned about getting people to turn up to events? Because Mm -hmm. this, that's been like, as you probably know, we run an events business or Mm -hmm. we did before the pandemic. Now it's an, anyway, we run an events business and that's one of the biggest challenges is to get through to people and say, here's an event. We know it's valuable Mm -hmm. for you. Come along. Like the marketing and promotion of events is such a big task. Yeah. And admittedly, I think I kind of suck at marketing. <laughs> I, mean, I, I will say that I have learned a lot, but it's still a pain point for me. And mm. a big reason why I created an in-person event is because I don't like to interact on social media. I don't want to be very active. I don't consider myself an influencer where I've got to post every day, right? And because I'm not creating content, I don't see myself. I feel like I'm evolving into a content creator, but I don't really see myself that way. I see myself as a content curator and an event producer, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the marketing online, the digital marketing side of it was very, very challenging for me. But a couple of things that I learned is, um, don't give away tickets for free because that to me, you know, I was doing like, Okay, so here's one thing that I that I think I did very well marketing-wise. I recognize that I'm much more of a talker than a typer. Obviously, <laughs> I like to talk, right? And so I I just went 
crazy getting on podcasts. I've had like 60 podcast interviews promoting this event. Wow. And so that, that was something that I was really comfortable with. I'm much more comfortable talking. And so what I would do to kind of like convince the host to let me on the show is I'd say, you know, I have a story behind this. It's not just me pushing my event. I have other things that I want to say, but what we can offer to your audience is a discount code on tickets and we could do like a ticket giveaway that's going to support you in something else you're trying to get your audience to do. So a lot of times people wanted uh, for for podcasts, they would want their audience to lead, to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, right? You always mm. hear hosts say that. And so what they could do is say, if you rate and review today and send me a screenshot, you're entered into a chance to win tickets to these com- this conference. I love um, that. Yeah. So it, I was giving them almost like a, a, a way to engage with their audience. And, you know, these tickets were $150, $200 each. So it was a big value to give away two of them. But here's the thing. What I, what I learned through trying to give away tickets is that most people either aren't going to claim them or they aren't going to come if the tickets are free. And I think the reason is because the ticket price is actually the lowest barrier to entry for you actually coming to this event. You still have to take time off of work. You've got to find, you know, someone to watch your kids. You got to book a hotel. You got to book a flight. Like the cost of coming, the the ticket price is actually the, the least bit of a hurdle for that. And so giving away tickets was not a good move because most of those people aren't going to come. And then that screws with like my capacity and how many people are actually coming and how, mm. you know, do I have 250? Do I have a hundred? Because I gave away too many for free. And I, I think naively in the beginning, I thought if I could just get people there, if I could just get butts in the seats and let them see how amazing this is, they'd be willing to pay next time. But I think that was just a very naive assumption. So no more free tickets. The discount codes are fine. I'm happy to still do those, but yeah. So the podcast competitions didn't actually work that well. No. And they actually, I think that they were a bad look for me, especially when people would do them like on Instagram or social media posts, because what would happen is they'd say, we're giving away a ticket. Comment with like the reason why you want to come or the speaker you're most excited to see. And then nobody wanted the damn free tickets. And so then it looks like there's no demand for this event. So Mm. actually giving away something for free backfired and didn't, and, and kind of made it look like there was less demand. I think really what helped me, especially as people were really getting excited to come together as COVID was dying down and everyone's so starved for human connection. I think that FOMO of like everybody else is going. I mean, you kind of fell into that. You're like, my friends are going. I want to go. All my friends are going. I was like, yeah, because Pete, Mr. Money Mustache said, I'm going. Carl, Mr. 1500 said, I'm going. It's like, I get to hang out with all my friends if I go. Oh no, yeah. I can't go because I'm out oh, of yeah. time in the US. Yeah, it was, was... It, it was interesting too how many people told me that they couldn't come because they had a conflict or there was some other reason that they couldn't come. And then last minute, the FOMO was so strong that they ended up buying a ticket anyway and figuring it out. I had one guy write me and this was within, so I opened up, uh, I, I offered to give full refunds up to 30 days before the event if you decided you weren't going to make it, right? And so you had you had up to 30 days and this guy got a refund and then he regretted it so much saying that he wasn't going to come that the week before 
he and he got his he got he had early bird pricing. So he ended up paying more because he got a refund for his early bird pricing and then bought a ticket at full price because he regretted so much <laughs> that that he said he was you know, he thought he wouldn't wasn't going to go because he saw all his friends going. So that I think definitely helped me a lot. Yeah, there's this thing of getting a few people to say yes. Mm-hmm. will then get more people to say yes that then gets more people to say yes and yeah it's huge and the free tickets thing that you said is very interesting as you know the rebel business school no one's ever paid to come to our events mm-hmm. all of our tickets have always been free but we get about a 50% show up rate yep yeah which is actually really high for a free ticket um but free tickets it's fascinating like the cost is the lowest barrier you're exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I'll say about your 50% no-shows, and on a paid event, um, it's typical around 20%. I still have to run my numbers to see where I netted out there, but but even when people pay, they still won't show up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Katie and I have done it. We've paid for an event, uh, and then whatever happens, and you go, we've got an emergency, but we paid for the event oh, it's only a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. We just need to do this other thing. So right. we've done it as well. And I think it's always going to happen to a certain percentage of the people. Always. Totally. totally. Well, I'll say this about marketing too, because I, I know that we ta- when we were setting up this interview, one of the things I said to you that I, I, I learned that I was surprised by. Um, so I had gone to an event, podcast movement, in Nashville in like August of this year. And Mm. I met another event producer who produces an event called Pod Fest. He gets about 3,000 people to come to his event. And we had some mutual friends. And so they recommended I talk to him about some of my challenges. And again, marketing is one of my biggest challenges. So I talked to him about it. And he really encourages me to reach out to people individually, reach out one by one. And I thought this is such an inefficient use of time, (laughs) right? Like I'm trying to reach a broad, you know, a a larger audience to be able to, you know, attract my people. And he's like, no, one-on-one outreach will get you further. And so, I mean, this guy clearly knows what he's doing. He has a very successful events business. And so I thought, okay, let me try it. And I ended up reaching over the course of like, a month and a half, I probably reached out individually to over a thousand people. And these were people that were following me on Instagram, people that I was Facebook friends with. I was just reaching out. I reached out to over a thousand people individually. And this had a higher conversion rate than anything else I've done. So it was about a 6% conversion rate, people buying tickets, um, because it makes a huge difference when the founder of something reaches out to you and says, I'd really like for you to join us. And then I got to hear what the objections might be. Oh, yes. well, you know, I'm, I didn't think I would want to go because of this, or I don't understand what this is. Or, you know, I remember this one guy I talked to, he was trying to decide if he would come to economy or if he would go to another conference that was like about credit cards and like credit card hacking. And it was happening like within the same week. And so he didn't feel like he could go to both. And so I said, well, here are all the reasons why economy is better. And I just shamelessly, you know, pitched my, pitched my event. And, you know, this is all through just like an Instagram direct exchange. And, 
he goes, you know, you're a really good salesperson. I just bought a ticket. <laughs> like he just, he was like, no one at credit card hacking conference Says, is, come, is, come. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I don't know that that's sustainable for the long term, but I think especially in these building years where I'm building a reputation, the the economy brand is really making a name for itself outside of the amazing speakers that, that we're able to attract. I think that it is worth you got to have that hustle. But now, especially after my second event, and it blew up online after the second event, which was amazing to me and unexpected because the first event, people really liked it, but they didn't talk about it as much online, I think, because all this COVID stuff was going on. So now after this event, people loved it and they talked about it a lot and they shared their pictures. And I mean, I spent probably about a week just scrolling and taking screenshots of the things that everyone was saying, because, you know, if they're not tagging me or they're not using the hashtag or they're not tagging the business, you know, then I wouldn't know it. And so I'm just seeing out in the wild, all these people talking about economy and it was just like crazy to me. Um, so yeah, I, I think now I'm right at the cusp where I still have to market the event, but I don't have to push as hard as I did the first two years. Well, it's known now. Yeah. Um, and my business partner, Simon, and I always talk about the sort of tidal wave thing mm-hmm. whereby you have to put the energy out there. You have to put the energy out there and you do it almost for two years with get nothing back. But then yeah. all of a sudden there's this tidal wave that comes back that you weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you're building towards that. One thing I did want to comment on is the one-to-one messaging and Mm, mm -hmm. every rebel business school I teach and work on people say to me Alan like I just need to automate this yeah I just need to find the system create the system buy the expensive piece of software automate it and I spend my time saying like you're doing exactly what I did you're trying to automate it and be as smart as Mm -hmm. possible but stop being smart and start talking to people. Yeah. And I feel like I've been saying that for a long time now. Um, That shift of speaking one-to-one, what was the value of that piece of advice and how did it really help the event? Huge. You know what, you know what it reminded me of? I remember, so I throw a big Christmas party every year. It's, you know, (laughs) for my friends, right? I, it's my Christmas extravaganza. And I remember years ago I was in an an apartment in Brooklyn and my best friend was helping me set up the party. And there were like 50 people who said they were going to come. And so I had all this food. I mean, I completely rearranged my furniture. I mean, I was expecting 50 people in my one bedroom apartment. And then like 20 people showed up and I was so upset. And I felt so like, oh, these people said they were going to come and they didn't come. And my best friend at the time looks at me and she says, but look at the people who are here. Focus on them. They're here. They're supporting you. They want to be at your party. And so who cares about those 30 people that didn't come? Focus on these people. They are your people. And so when he, when I got this advice to reach out one-on-one, I, I was kind of reminded of that spirit of like, 
focus on the people who are engaging with you versus the people who aren't. And just trust that I needed to have this trust that it's just going to work out in the long run. And I don't need millions of people to come to my event. I don't need millions of followers on social media platforms. I actually um, only have capacity for 560 people. It's really not unreasonable for me to reach out to them one-on-one you know, and, and sell one ticket at a time from individual outreach. It's not like I'm trying to get thousands of people here. And so I, I think that there's a lot of value also in just like customer service. Anyone who sent me an email, anyone who reached out to me in any capacity always got a very nice response from me. Um, that to me is just, you know, when you get so big that you can't answer everyone, I understand that, but I'm not there, right? I mean, I guess it's a good problem to have, but I'm not that big. So anyone who is interested in economy will get a personal response from me. Which is incredible. And like, I've kind of got to the stage where I can't keep up with messages and emails. And it. I still haven't figured that one out because I feel dreadful. People send me lovely messages and I don't reply. Yeah. Um, and there's just too many because you get whatsapp messages and facebook messages and twitter messages and then you get emails and yeah it's really interesting i used to reply to every single person Mm -hmm. that responded and i still go through fits and starts um Mm -hmm. so if you're listening to this and i've ignored you i'm really sorry (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but you go through fits and starts where i get on top of my email and then i get distracted by laugh life and yeah Mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. inbox fills up and but you went through a period of time when you had the capacity to answer right and that's kind yeah. of where I'm at now and I don't want to miss that opportunity to no. engage with my initial supporters you they're know, your that's lifelong huge. fans yes yes exactly so I love that you're doing that I love that you're doing that so you're building this incredible conference Where do you want to go with it? What's the Mm. vision for economy? You know, it's funny because at this last event, we had 400 people and everyone said to me, this is going to blow up. You're going to have to get a bigger venue. You have to do multiple events a year. You got to do this and that, blah, 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 right? It's like everyone expects me to build an empire off of this. And I don't know if that necessarily interests me. I think I'm much more excited about high impact, right? And so thinking about growing this event to 2,000 people is not appealing to me because I think a a big part of the magic for the attendees was that it was relatively small, that you could walk up to any one of like the five famous people and just have a conversation, right? You wouldn't necessarily be able to do that at a 2000 person event. And so I think that I'm just a real stickler for attendee experience down to like the tiny little details of how comfortable the chairs are for you to sit there for two hours and listen to speakers (laughs) or like the campus that we have it on is the university of Cincinnati. I've I get lost every time I go there. So I printed and actually my boyfriend lovingly placed 500 branded footprints all over campus to help you find the venue, right? The check-in, like 
from the moment you walk in, you're greeted by you. You've got a warm person greeting you. Check-in ran so smoothly. We had to get 400 people in the door in half an hour. And it was like super smooth. The lighting, the music, the atmosphere, the flow of traffic, that stuff to me is what makes the attendee experience more pleasant so that people are a bit more open to what you're going to learn and the people you're going to meet versus distracted by, you know, the being uncomfortable in some way. And so I would rather perfect that part of the event and, you know, increase revenue from raising the ticket price than worry about, increasing the size of the audience. I think there's a lot of value in keeping it small. I would rather see 400 or 560 tickets, which is my max capacity. I want to see those sell out in a minute. That to me is so much more exciting than, you know, multiple events a year and bigger venue and all this kind of stuff. And also we're recording all of the main stage speakers. And so the people that are the most interested in the actual content at the event I tell them to save save your money. Don't come to the event if all you want to do is see these main stage speakers because I'm going to give that to you for free. I, I'm really investing in videography and you're going to see these beautiful videos up on my YouTube channel. You don't pay for a ticket for the content. You pay for the community and the and to be in the position to contribute to the community because I think one of the, the things that sounds a little weird to say out loud, but the customer for economy is as much the product as they are the customer. I got to have cool, badass people in that room, right? I got to have people that are willing to have fun and engage with each other. That is what creates the magic of the event. So the boring people that are there just for a speech and like to pull out a spreadsheet and take some notes and then go home, just, just stay home. I'll give it to you for free. <laughs> Interesting. I love it. <laughs> So one thing you have inspired me from that last section is so many people come to me and say, Alan, I've got to scale my business. Mm. And I think every MBA, every business training course talks about scalability. Mm. How are you going to scale? How are you going to grow? What are you going to do? And I keep thinking, why? Yeah. Why are you scaling? What is the purpose? Can you earn enough from one event a year? Yeah. that actually looks after you? And the answer is yes. There's some people that run yep. incredible events and they run one event really well. So you don't have to scale. Mm -hmm. And anyone listening to this, the same thing. You do not have to scale. It's like, why are you doing this? When is enough profit, money, the right amount? Right. And I think it's about creating a life you actually want to live because exactly. we've done that with some of our events where we push, 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 grow, 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 grow. And then it's just not fun. And yeah. then you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, yeah. And you actually kill the thing you love mm -hmm. sometimes if you grow. It, you make such a good point there. And I actually was on a different podcast talking about some of my self-limiting beliefs around personally profiting from this business. It's been a mindset shift for me because I built this as a passion project. I built this and the whole business model is not intended for me to make a personal profit from it, right? 
this was supposed to be what I was doing with my time when I had no need to make money for my livelihood. Now that considerably changed because I decided not to wait until financial independence to do it. And I actually left my corporate job this past January. So that cushy six-figure salary that was subsidizing my ability to produce this event has now gone away. So I... I've had to kind of shift my thinking around it doesn't matter if I ever make money off of this to I'm not going to let this business bankrupt me, right? (laughs) I have to make the business has to be profitable for it to be sustainable. And I need to be more willing to allow this, allow myself to compensate myself for my time so that I can put more of myself into it. Because what was happening is because I wasn't allowing myself to make money off of economy, I was needing to make that money elsewhere. And that was r- causing stress, right? It's It fills up your life when you've got your passion project that you don't make any money off of, and then you've got your work that you do make money off of. And so I'm in the process now of shifting there. But yeah, I mean, the business will be profitable by the next event. It will turn a healthy profit by the next event, but it will have been five years since uh, since I started working on it before I'll ever make a dime off of it. And I know that you help people, you know, start businesses without getting in the red. So it is embarrassing to tell you that I, I took a 40 grand loss on my first event. But here's the thing I'll also say about these kind of entrepreneurial pursuits. There's a part of me that wanted to protect it as a creative endeavor. And I think there is some value to that. You don't have to make money off out of all the work that you do. But if you're super passionate about it, it may lead to something more than what you set out to do. And that's what I'm finding for myself. I didn't set out to make a bunch of money off of economy, but it is leading, it is, it is growing into a very profitable business. And so, you know, it's it's just interesting that you have to have the willingness to take some risks for something that you really believe in. And if you were to have never made a profit off of it, would you still do it? I had to ask myself that question, especially before the first event, because I knew I was going to take a 40 grand loss. And once I was seeing that the ticket sales did not cover my costs, I mean, there, there was not a lot of business justification for me to produce the first event right? I could have very easily said, there's not enough demand for this. The, there, there are not enough sales to cover my costs. Um, this was a good idea, but nobody wants this. I'm going to shut it down. The way I looked at it instead is that I have the financial bandwidth because I had been saving 60% of my income to take a risk and create something I really want to see in the world. And so I don't have any children. I don't plan on having any children. I look at economy like my baby. And if I were to actually have a child, it would cost me a hell of a lot more than 40 grand over 18 years, right? (laughs) And so I thought in my mind, if I lose this 40 grand and then the business shuts down and I never do this again, is it still worth it? And yes, to me it was because I was able to create something that I'm really proud of. And then there's a lot of value to me in that. So I think it's that kind of almost emotional attachment to a creative endeavor, to a passion project, to something you really want to see in the world that can enable you to push through the scary 40 grand loss, the 150 people turning you down, the I wasn't able to get any sponsors my first year. 
you know, that's why I was the sponsor. That 40 grand was me sponsoring the event. You (laughs) You um, had your name in lights above the event. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing about the pursuit of financial independence, I think it really sets you up to take some entrepreneurial risks because I had a 60% savings rate and I had a pretty good six figure income. So even though I lost 40 grand, that 40 grand, and I didn't lose it. I invested it in my business, right? Let's not say lose. I, that's when I feel bad about my, like bad about it. I say I lost it when I'm feeling good about it. I say I invested it in my own business. Um, but that 40 grand is what I would have put into an after-tax brokerage, um, for my, five savings, right? To, to reach my fine number. So I was still fully funding all of my retirement vehicles. My living expenses are only about 30 grand a year. So I cash flowed that 40 grand. I didn't take out any debt for it. I didn't have any investors for that. I was able to do it all on my own. And I think the pursuit of FI set me up to be able to do that. You know, you hear about entrepreneurs that are like draining their 401k to fund their business. Like, no, I am not doing that. And I would not take a, it does. And, and you only hear the times that it works out. Right. And it works out very few times. And so I was not going to put myself in a position to take a 40 grand loss every year. Right. I needed to know that like, this this was going to go somewhere and I had enough belief in it. So yeah, I'm not going to let this business bankrupt me, but I was willing to take that that big risk in the first year. It's interesting because the general philosophy of the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast and the whole business school is sell the tickets first. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't cost the cover the costs, like just don't do it, hand back the money and don't do it. Uh, you went through and did it anyway, mm-hmm. and you accepted that for all the reasons you said. The second year, it grew massively. Have you recouped the forty grand loss, or that'll be the third year? So that'll be the third year. Um, this year, so because I was able to cash flow that forty grand, the second year made about it's like a thirty grand profit from the second event. Now that thirty grand profit is basically my carrying costs till the next event. So it's not like I'm taking that money out and living on it. I don't look at it as I have not taken out my 40 grand investment. It's still in the business, but because I was able to do that, cash flow is pretty healthy and the projections for the next event are very healthy because I'm increasing the ticket price because I've already sold 150 tickets for, I did a pre-sell while we were at the event. So I have a lot of confidence. I mean, these people don't even know when the date is, but they loved it so much that they were willing to (laughs) fork over, you know, money to buy a ticket this far in advance. It's like 18 months in advance. You know, I have sponsors that are already committed to increase their sponsorship level for the next event. So, I mean, I've already banked about 40 grand And I just ended this last event and I've already banked about 40 grand for the next event. So that gives me a lot of confidence that the days of 40 grand losses are over. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there is a very important point that I want to bring up. I don't know if this will help you, but definitely for the audience is never be afraid to make a profit. Yeah. Because if you are delivering something that helps other people, if you're delivering something of value into the world, people want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I want to pay for it. Like if it's an event that 
I love, I will happily pay for it. And I've had this experience recently of there are people who run things and do things that I truly love and I don't want them to stop. Yeah. And I want them to charge me more. I'm like, if you're not making money, charge me more. So you keep doing it because I love it. And if people want what you do, there's no shame in making a profit. And actually, if you don't make a profit, you won't want to keep doing it. There comes a stage where you go, this shit is just not worth it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And if you're not covering your costs, if you're not looking at that, you just won't want to do it. And I've found that in different places. And even if you're FI, like even if you don't need the money, there comes a point where you just go, this is just not worth it. Yeah. Uh, And it sounds strange, but you don't need the money and the event is like, or whatever it is you're doing is a hassle. Right. You go, well, it's just not worth it. It's just adding nothing to my life. Well, I think, again, I've always known that the business needs to be profitable. I think I'm now shifting my mindset to recognize that I need to be compensated for all the work that I'm putting into it. But it's huge. It's, it is huge. And I think the, the, the business needing to be profitable allows me to outsource more, bring in more help, pay the people that are helping me. I mean, I, there are so many people that come out of the woodwork to help me that I haven't been able to afford to pay. And so be in this year, um, even though the business is still in the red because I, the, the event itself was profitable, you know, I threw a few thousand dollars at the people that like, you know, really helped me the volunteers, a few key volunteers that I wouldn't be able to do this without. And it wasn't because they didn't care about the money. They just want to support me. But I was able to show my appreciation by paying them. And I think it's important when you're getting something started, you know, people are willing to, you know, support you and maybe give their time and volunteer. But as the thing grows, like I've got to show them my appreciation in return in, in some monetary way. And so I was really happy to be in a position to do that. But I want to be in a position to, you know, pay for people to help me market this thing, you know, that that so that I can focus on the parts of the event that I really enjoy. And then the things that are really challenging for me, I can get some more support there. But I need to turn a profit before I can do that. Definitely. Definitely. So for the people listening, like you have thrown your energy into creating a huge event what are the biggest learnings you've had through this process of taking Um, and building a giant event i would say that the skills that make me a very good employee make me a horrible entrepreneur (laughs) so true So true, right? So like when I think about my corporate career and I had these big clients like Budweiser and, you know, multi-billion dollar names and I worked at the biggest uh, licensing agency in the world. So we had the best talent in the world. Our quality of work was top notch. Nothing went out the door unless it was perfect, right? And you had 10 people put their, you know, seal of approval on it. When I'm by myself producing, building this brand, producing this event, I don't have other people to give me a pat on the head and say, that looks good. I don't have the checks and balances that I had in my corporate career. And I don't have the luxury of putting out perfect stuff. 
So I have to throw shit at the wall and see what works. I have to be willing to be messy. I have to be willing to start ugly. And that was a huge um, shift for me, big learning for me. To, to I was scared. It was not my normal way of working. I'm a perfectionist. I did not like it at all. And I had to push past my comfort zone and, and be willing to do that. I think that entrepreneurship can be a really intense form of therapy because you're going to see where all your insecurities are. They are just going to come up and taunt you and very intensely, right? So I'm more comfortable in front of a microphone now. But when when I was building this thing, I didn't think it was about me. I didn't think I was going to have to be a personality. I didn't think I was going to have to put myself out there and tell my story and have all the attention on me. Um, and really, I look at it now as it's not about me. I'm I'm a vessel for sharing information. Um, but at the time, it, it I did not like it. I did not. I'm the kind of person that thinks I want to be the center of attention, but then when it actually happens, I want to crawl under a table, right? <laughs> and so I had to get over that. And it was really challenging. I also will tell you that I very much struggled with my mental health. I went through very dark periods. I mean, before the first event, so the first event was in March of 2020. I would say from July to like October of 2019, I was severely depressed. Like, like couldn't get out of bed. I was putting so much pressure on myself. I was not taking care of myself and I didn't have the coping skills to deal with all of these insecurities that were coming up. So it, it, it took a lot of work and coaching and, you know, getting help for myself to be able to push past that. And I think I do have the skills now that I'm able to better navigate uncertainty. That's the thing. Entrepreneurship is all uncertainty. And we don't <laughs> like that. Our brains do not like that. And so when you throw yourself into uncertainty and you don't have coping mechanisms for that, it's a recipe for a, a mental health crisis. And I, I lived through it. My friends and family were very worried about me. They've never seen me that way. And so I will say that if anyone else is going through that, know that it's normal because I felt a lot of shame. Like I can't, you know, I can't hack it, you know, that, you know, I'm so fortunate that I get to have this opportunity to live my dream. And I'm like, I'm struggling with my mental health. This doesn't make any sense. Like I felt um, like I was wasting an opportunity and it was really, really hard, but I've come to understand that that is very normal and that many entrepreneurs go through a lot of highs and lows. It's just a part of the game, just like the stock market, right? We got to ride that roller coaster and recognize that if we stay on the roller coaster, you know, we'll likely make out in the end. So yeah, I feel like I'm taking a long time to answer this question, but a lot of learnings, a lot of learnings that, that I did not expect at all. Also, when you're budgeting doing projections, making assumptions on a business that is brand new, you're going to be wrong about everything, <laughs> wrong about everything. And so that was hard, right? Like I'm a type A person. I'm a planner. I was making all these brilliant plans and coming up with like how I'm going to do this and how this is going to go. And then it doesn't go that way or people don't behave the way you think they're going to behave. And that's, that's just part of the game too. You're going to be wrong about everything. <laughs> it's just the way that life is. 
in general, but especially with entrepreneurship. <laughs> you're going to be wrong about everything. I love that. Um, if you're listening to this, when you launch your business, you're going to be wrong about everything. You will go and see a customer. They will tell you they don't want it. They want something completely different. Um that's the most succinct sentence I've ever said, because I was exactly the same. I was wrong about everything. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I go and see a customer and they go, we don't care. This is yeah. what we want. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no. Um, and I'm surprised how wrong I was. I think the bit that I didn't realize is the process of being wrong is how you work out what to do. Yes. And that's the bit that affected my mental health because I thought I'm just wrong I'm just wrong I'm just wrong I never really related that to if I keep being wrong eventually I'll get to being right yeah uh and then eventually you find something that works and you have one customer and then this and then that and it starts to go but I never really realized that so I think that's a phenomenal lesson so to everyone listening this you're going to be wrong about everything and that's yeah. okay. Just well, keep and going. Also, maybe that's a good thing, right? I think what I had to learn is to stop being so attached to my ideas that I thought were right because they're going to be wrong. We've already established that, right? <laughs> um, but if I can let them go and just be open to the opportunities that are presenting themselves and recognize that I don't know everything. I don't know you know, the way that this perfectly should roll out. And so, yes, I need to make plans, but I also need to be flexible and open to like the opportunities that are being presented to me. So I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. Um, my after party venue, basically I thought it was shutting down due to COVID and I couldn't get them to commit to my date. And so by the time the guy got back to me, I was able to get in touch with him again they had sold the venue to another place, you know, to new owners. And they had already booked that date for like a wedding and they were going to, you know, triple the cost because the guy was not charging me nearly enough as he should have for that space. And so I lost my after party venue and I was devastated because in my mind, that's, that's the place I got to have my after party. That's the right thing to do. Well, what ended up happening is we had the after party in the same venue as um, the rest of the event. We just flipped the room over the course of two hours. I had already paid for the space for the day. It was cheaper and it was better for the audience because we were closer to the ho their hotels. It actually, plan B that I thought was an inferior plan was actually the superior plan. It's a good thing that I lost that venue. So this other example um, of me not knowing best. And, and to me, it's the humility of realizing I don't know what's best. Right. So there I've been speakers that, you know, I'm working with them on deciding what they're going to speak about. They're working on their speech. I don't agree with whatever, or it's not for me. It's not for my taste. And I'm the one curating this thing. And so, you know, maybe I don't like something about the content that's coming through, but you know what? I'm, I'm one opinion. I'm just one opinion. There's 400 people in that room that all have different tastes. And so I'm not the end all be all. And so I think what I've learned too is like the people that I'm working with, as long as I've established an element of trust with them and that there's a strong enough relationship there, 
I got to let them do what they want to do. Right. And I treat my, the whole production team, we've got about 50 people that are there for the day of the event, whether it's lighting, sounds, videography, we've got breakout session leaders, we've got volunteers, we've got the speakers, we've got stage manager, production manager, right? All of these people. I, I'm not a dictator when it comes to the team. I, I am smart enough to surround myself with people smarter than me and to give them creative liberty for us to put on a really good show together. And so I've had to let go of some control in that sense of, you know, I don't know the best after party venue. I don't know the best content and speech for those speakers. I've got to be open to watching it unfold at the same time as I'm creating it. Does that make sense? Yes, it also sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> this is where the uncertainty comes in. This is where the, you know, the depression and the anxiety and the mental health issues come from is because I was resistant to that. I was yes, so you were resistant fighting to it. that. I was fighting it and I wanted to control everything. And once I really learned how to let go, and enjoy the process and trust that I don't know best. Things started really happening in such a magical way. What a journey you have been on. And I think, Diana, just the biggest thank you for being open about it all, about what you've learned, what went well, what went wrong. Because sometimes when you have these chats, people like to present the picture of mm-hmm. here's everything that went well uh, mm-hmm. and you never see the real life ups and yeah. downs um which we all actually go through yeah. <laughs> and oh yeah everyone listening to this podcast has been building businesses and launching them and that's the whole point of this is let's honestly share the ups and downs the things that go well the things that go badly so that we can all learn together and yeah. you have been on a phenomenal learning journey which now you're applying to year 3 and you'll apply to year 4 and it will get better and better and better every time you do it yeah that's the plan that is the plan alan i love it <laughs> so if people want to come along to economy to yes. meet the speakers, to experience this phenomenal event you create. Where do they go? Yeah. So you can go to economyconference.com. And economy is actually spelled with an M-E at the end, not an M-Y, because I think I'm so clever. Um, <laughs> but yes, economyconference.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list and you can kind of check out we're doing some updates to the website right now, but you can ch- check out, you know, the past speakers, the programming. Um, we've got frequently asked questions, that kind of stuff. Um, and so sign up for the mailing list so that you can keep in touch with me and follow the journey to the next event. That's where I'll announce speakers. That's where I communicate the most um, is, is through my email newsletter. And you can also subscribe to the Economy Conference YouTube channel. And there you're going to see all of the videos from past events. And I've also got, you know, a highlight reel for you. So you really get a feel for the vibe of what it's like to be there. Um, So you can binge watch all of those videos and get yourself pumped to join us in the spring of 2023. And then finally, we've talked all about the economy conference, but I also do host another podcast um, called Optimal Finance Daily. And this is a show where I narrate um, blog posts from very 
popular personal finance bloggers, people like Paula Pant, J.L. Collins, Mr. Money Mustache. So I like to say all these bloggers wrote these amazing songs and I get to perform the covers. <laughs> so it is it is every single day in 10 minutes or less. Um, so, so you can subscribe there and, and check me out there as well. Fantastic. And do go and check out the conference. Do listen to that. Uh, I am hoping to be there in 2023. You uh, better so be there, Alan. Better be there. <laughs> I really do want to come this year. Uh, and it'll be nice to meet everyone and see everyone. And so, yeah, if you're going along, I will see you there. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your story. If you're listening to this, this is the oxygen that keeps us going as entrepreneurs is the real life stories where you get to see, hear what it's actually like building businesses. And you can learn from what <laughs> we do that we wouldn't do again. And you can learn from what we did that actually worked. Uh, Economy Conference, go find the website, come along, have a wonderful time building businesses. And thank you for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.